Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And our theme for Sardis this evening, taken straight from the words of Jesus here, wake up, wake up. Have you ever been left disappointed because reality didn't match reputation? Maybe you've had the experience of waiting and waiting for weeks to get a a booking, to get an available seat at a restaurant. You've been told this restaurant is fantastic, great food, great service. But when you finally got to go, the portion sizes were tiny, the waiter was unprofessional, the food was cold. Reality didn't match reputation. Or maybe you look forward to going on holiday for weeks and weeks, waiting for the day to come when you jetted off to a hotel or a city break, but you discovered that the city wasn't that nice, your accommodation was mediocre, your experiences weren't what you were hoping for. Reality didn't match reputation. Well, that's Jesus' main complaint with the fifth church that he writes to in Revelation. He says that they have a reputation that doesn't match the reality of their situation. A reputation of being alive, Jesus says. A reputation as a healthy church, maybe a busy church, a strong church. But in reality, a dead or nearly dead church. Jesus' letter to Sardis is, you might say, his most negative, his most deeply challenging, perhaps, letter. It's the first letter we've come to in which Jesus has virtually nothing good to say about what's happening in this church because the problem in this church was that serious. During his earthly ministry, Jesus on one occasion compared himself to a doctor. He said in Mark 2 verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And inspired by that verse, Jesus is often referred to by Christians as the great physician. Just as our GPs and doctors and hospitals look at our physical needs and diagnose and they offer treatments, Jesus does the same for our souls and for our churches. Jesus knows how to diagnose and treat sickly, deathly churches. And that's what he does here for the church in Sardis. So three things to notice from what Jesus says to this church. Uh, We'll spend slightly more of our time on the first compared to the second Uh, But first of all this evening, let's think about Jesus' dire diagnosis. Jesus' dire diagnosis. Look what Jesus says at the end of verse 1. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Jesus' diagnosis of the Sardis church is that they are dead. Or at least, at best, they are on death's door. What a shocking description of a local church by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not brush past it. Let's not ignore it. Let's take note of the fact, friends. Let's take note that it is possible for a local church in the eyes of Jesus to be dead. Or as good as dead. Perhaps it's possible for a church to own a building or... To have owned one for a long, long time or to be preaching from the Bible or to be full of nice people, well-dressed, good living people. And yet for there to be next to no spiritual life in that church whatsoever. 
Friends, that's possible in big churches and small churches. In popular churches and churches hardly anyone has heard about. Contemporary churches and traditional churches, liberal churches and reformed churches. It's possible for any kind of church to be dead. Jesus says you have the reputation of being alive. And that word reputation in the original could also be translated as name. And the word appears four times in the six verses of this letter. Here is a church, friends, living off a name, living off a reputation, rather than living by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. What had happened in Sardis the church had happened already in Sardis the city. Sardis was another impressive city in the ancient world. A few hundred years before the birth of Jesus, people had discovered silver and gold deposits in the area of Sardis. And they had learned how to separate gold from silver. And so the area became a bit of a hot spot. People flooded in, hoping to make a bit of a fortune in the area. Coming into the time of the Roman Empire, Sardis, just like Ephesus and Pergamum, some of the places we've looked at, it became a city filled with temples to pagan gods. And just like some of those other cities we've looked at, the temples in Sardis became focal points of everyday life. And not just for worship, but for all kinds of other things went on at these pagan temples, including idolatry, of course. In 17 AD, however, there was an earthquake in Sardis. And the city was ruined and had to be rebuilt at great expense. And although they had managed it and there were lots of temples and a stadium and even marble roads in Sardis by the time Jesus wrote this letter, the city was actually in long-term decline. And it would never get back to what it had been in ancient times. And Jesus warns the church in this city that the same could be true for them. Jesus' diagnosis of this church is that it is dead or nearly dead. And friends, if we're Christians, shouldn't it concern us that it's possible for a church to be living off only a reputation? To seem to be alive, busy, full of energy, when in fact, from Jesus' perspective, it's on death's door. What causes a church to be dead, in Jesus' opinion? Well, one Christian leader, Tom Rayner, uh, he's written a book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Not a particularly cheery title, uh, but in the book, which is based on his own evidence and research, uh, he lists several reasons why churches die and close, some of the most common reasons. And among those reasons, he includes the following. A church that begins to treat the past as the hero. A church whose budget is focused increasingly inward on their own needs. A church that makes the great commission, the great omission. In other words, an increasing lack of interest in both local and, uh, local and global gospel mission. A church that lets personal agendas drive decisions. A church that fails to make reg- regular corporate prayer a priority. A church that has no clear purpose statement or vision statement. And all of those things, friends, any one of them or a combination of them, probably other things as well, can lead to a church becoming less about mission and instead turning into a bit of a museum, a monument to the past. 
As I mentioned earlier, this can happen to all different kinds of churches, big, small, liberal, conservative. A church that has next to nothing going on beyond Sabbath day services, maybe just a few dozen people, that can be a dead church, but equally, equally, a church of hundreds, maybe thousands, with lots of activities running nearly every day of the week out of the best building that money can buy, that can also be a spiritually dead church. What's the most important variable here? What determines whether a church is alive or dead? Well, I think we have a bit of the answer in something Jesus says in verse 5. Jesus says in verse 5, The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name. Notice that word again. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Why does Jesus keep using this word name? Well, friends, perhaps what was wrong in Sardis was they they had stopped publicly proclaiming the name of Jesus. They had stopped caring about their witness. And Jesus seems to be challenging them in verse 5 by saying, Confess my name in Sardis, and I'll confess your name in heaven. But if you keep living off your own name in Sardis, you won't hear me confess your name in heaven. The church in Sardis, Jesus doesn't say that they had compromised with false teaching. Like Pergamum and Thyatira had done. But nor had they publicly witnessed to the truth. They just hadn't been doing anything. They'd been keeping their heads down. They'd been saying to each other, well, you know, we've been worshipping here 5, 10, 15 years. Everyone in our city knows that. Everyone knows about the sacrifices we made in the past. Everyone remembers the revivals and the sermons and the mission trips we organized back in the day. We've done our bit. We've got a good reputation now. We're an established church. If God wants to save anybody in our city, he'll do it in his time. And they had gone from being on mission to being in a museum. One of my favorite music artists is Bruce Springsteen. You can blame my father for that, playing lots of Bruce Springsteen in the car on long journeys when I was young. And Springsteen has a song called Glory Days. Uh, And the song is written from the perspective of a middle-aged man who uh, bumps into an old friend from school and they go for a drink and they start talking about their school days together. And the song is quite upbeat and it doesn't take itself too seriously. But there's a line near the end where the, the, the singer says... Time slips away and leaves you with nothing but boring stories of glory days. There's nothing wrong with looking back and laughing and talking about the good old days sometimes. But eventually the same old stories and the same old memories become reputation and not reality. How we almost made it and what we used to do, what we could have been. And sometimes that attitude, friends, slips into the church. Some churches get more excited about the past than about the present and the future. Some churches care more about telling everyone what used to happen. Back in Reverend So-and-So's day, or when Mrs. What's-Her-Name came to this church, or when the new building was open back in 1876. 
And somehow in all those stories, the name of Jesus is rarely mentioned. We can't just live off the past. Whatever good reputation we might have had or had, whether we have a good reputation now or we did in the past, we can be thankful for the past. We can be thankful for gospel heritage, for God's faithfulness. But friends, the church must be about proclaiming the name of Jesus today and tomorrow, locally and globally, powerfully and passionately. Otherwise, Jesus' verdict on any of us today could be the same as it was for the church in Sardis. You think you're alive, but my diagnosis is that you're dead. So that's Jesus' dire diagnosis. But secondly, let's think about Jesus' prescribed treatment. Jesus' prescribed treatment. Jesus tells the Sardis church you're dead. And yet look what he says in verse 2. Wake up. Wake up. You might think, well, what's the point in telling a dead person to wake up? Well, of course, what makes Jesus the great physician is that he can bring new life to what is dead or dying. This is Jesus' unique power. This is what makes him the great physician. Jesus demonstrated that during his earthly ministry. Remember, he literally, physically raised dead people back to life, including his friend Lazarus and others as well. And Jesus himself, of course, is risen from the dead. He died on the cross three days later. He conquered death and rose again. And to be a Christian, to belong to Jesus, means that new life from Jesus has entered into our souls. That just as God breathed life into Adam in the garden, he has breathed new spiritual life into our dead souls. And that's why Jesus, friends, begins the letter to Sardis by saying, look at chapter 3, verse 1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits. As we saw in chapter 1, you might remember, that the seven spirits of God is a way of describing the perfect Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God who is life-giving. And we read a little bit of that earlier in Ezekiel 37. The breath, the wind, the Spirit of God breathing new life into dry bones. Friends, this is what can happen in dead or dying churches. Jesus is still willing to come and perform spiritual CPR to breathe upon dead churches by the power of the Holy Spirit and to resurrect them for service to him. In in the vision we read earlier in Ezekiel 37, it wasn't just that the the dry bones uh, came together again, flesh was put on them, and Ezekiel saw an army. He saw people ready to serve. And that's what can happen in dead churches. The power of the Holy Spirit can revive and equip for a fresh mission. And so the first treatment that Jesus prescribes for this church is that they wake up. And that the seven spirits of God perform CPR upon them, so to speak. He goes on at the end of verse 2. He says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What he's saying is, whatever it is you're doing, whatever they were doing in Sardis, Jesus didn't call it good works. He called it living off reputation, lifeless, no power in them. And so having prescribed them the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus goes further in verse 3. He gives them some commands in verse 3. He says, remember them what you received and heard. Keep it. And repent. 
But he's talking, what's he talking about when he says, remember what they've heard? Well, I think the most obvious answer to that would be the gospel. Uh, Paul uses similar language in some of his letters. He reminds people of what they have heard in the past and tells them to cling to it now and in the future. Jesus is challenging the Sardis church to consider whether they really care about the good news that sin can be forgiven, that new life can come through the person and work of Jesus. And friends, if we want to know whether we are a living church or whether we are a church on the brink of death, that's the question to ask ourselves. Do we really care about people coming to know Jesus? Is the gospel central to everything that we do as a church? Do we care about our public worship and witness or would we not really miss it if we lost it? This past year, God shut the doors of churches in a country that has enjoyed freedom to worship and preach the gospel for hundreds of years. We got a little taste of what it would be like to not have those things. Of course, we still had freedom to preach and to hear God's word preached one way or another. But the first lockdown in March last year was a little glimpse of what life would be like without church as we've known it. Did we care? Were we comfortable? Did we miss it? What about now? Are we concerned to receive and then to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? But we have heard ourselves. Are we keen for others to hear as well? Jesus says to the church in Sardis, keep it. That's the truth about, the, about Jesus, the gospel. Keep it and repent. You can let go of your reputation. You can do without the anniversaries marking 20 years in a building or 50 years since the church started or since a particular ministry began. You can do without a lot of things if you really have to. What we can't do without is the gospel. And for those, for those of us who have been Christians for many years, we need to resist the temptation of thinking that we've heard the gospel. That that kind of is what got us started as Christians and that we sort of go on by our own steam. That's not what the Christian life is about. We need to resist the temptation of thinking that we know our Bibles well enough or we've heard the gospel enough times. Jesus says to an established church here, to a church with a reputation, he says, repent Repentance is not just how the Christian life begins. Repentance is the Christian life. If your body still needs food every day, your soul still needs scripture every day, dear friend. A dead church is one that loses its appetite for the word of God and loses its love for proclaiming Jesus. A dead church is one that loses its appetite for the word of God and loses its love for proclaiming Jesus. Jesus says to this church, let go of your reputation and grab hold of the gospel. Repent of your fear of man or your lack of love for the lost or your constant looking back to the good old days. Whatever it is, repent of it and get back to holding on to and proclaiming the good news. And perhaps this is a timely word for the church generally today, dead or not. Going forward, pandemic or not, we need to make sure that we're focusing on our witness. That we're providing opportunities for friends and neighbours and colleagues to hear the good news. 
It's one of the reasons that we're looking for an alternative venue for worship so that we have a space that we can invite people in and we can all be there. And it is one of the good things about uh, the development of live stream and social media and so forth that we have, that's another way that we can get the gospel out. We can maybe point people in the way of uh, good videos, good clips, good sermons. But Jesus essentially tells this church, friends, don't be so concerned with your reputation. Be more concerned with my reputation, my name, and how you make it known. See, getting the focus off ourselves and onto Jesus is always the best form of treatment that can be prescribed for whatever the spiritual difficulties may be. Remember when we looked at Adam being placed in the Garden of Eden and how God didn't place Adam in the centre of the garden. He placed the trees, the two trees in the middle of the garden, which were symbolic of God's word. We're not supposed to be the centre of the universe. Our reputation, our past performance... Jesus is to be at the centre. The gospel is to be at the centre. And so whatever we might lose in this life, friends, our health, our friends, a building, a reputation, Jesus' prescribed treatment for the church is to keep hold of the gospel. So Jesus' dire diagnosis, Jesus' prescribed treatment, and then thirdly and finally this evening, Jesus' promising prognosis Jesus promising prognosis after a doctor diagnoses a condition and prescribes the right treatment. They'll often give a a, a prognosis, meaning they will say how they expect things to go if you stick to the treatment that you've been given. Well, what does the future hold for the Sardis church? Well, if they ignore Jesus' diagnosis, the future is bleak. Look at verse 3. Remember then what you have received and heard Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Once again, Jesus chooses words that will have the maximum impact on the particular church that he's speaking to. And these words would have had an impact in Sardis because the city of Sardis had been broken into and conquered twice in their history. Twice the watchmen on the walls of Sardis had not been alert enough or had fallen asleep and attackers had come and conquered Sardis. And Jesus warns them, if you don't cry out in repentance, if you're not interested in waking up, then just as your city was caught off guard and conquered, I will come against you, catch you off guard and conquer you. When Jesus says to the churches, I will come. He's not just talking about his second coming at the end of human history. Talked a little bit about this at our last Bible study. He's saying that he will come by the power of his spirit, by his power over our circumstances. And at any time, Jesus can end the existence of a local church. Everything feels so permanent and unchanging to us in the present but history shows us, friends, how quickly things can change. If you go to Sardis today, just as if you were to go to Ephesus or Pergamum, there are just a few ruins. No impressive old city with marble streets and thousands of people. There are just a few local villages full of people who don't know the gospel. Why? Because they didn't wake up. 
And Jesus came and he closed down the church. And there could be no more serious warning for us than that. I will come, Jesus says, like a thief. And so we need to pay attention to the treatment prescribed by our great physician friends. To wake up, to keep hold of the gospel. Otherwise there will be no reviving what is dead or dying. But there is a glimmer of good news in this letter. Look at verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What does Jesus mean by calling this handful of faithful followers in Sardis worthy? Well, of course, he doesn't mean that they're perfect, because none of us are. And he doesn't mean that they've earned their salvation, because none of us can. But in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus himself is twice described as worthy. Worthy is the Lamb, we read in Revelation 5. And as we'll see uh, when we get further into Revelation, that, that, that image of Jesus as the Lamb, it's really the key to the whole book. And Jesus is called worthy in Revelation 5 because he faithfully suffered for his people. And so Jesus is saying here that those who remain faithful to him in Sardis, those who aren't afraid to be his witnesses, they will be rewarded in due time. They will walk with Jesus, he says. They will walk with him. They will have fellowship with him. Once again, Revelation reminds us of Genesis. The Garden of Eden, paradise, was where God walked in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve before their fall into sin. Jesus promises those in Sardis who do wake up, who do keep hold of the gospel, who do repent, who do faithfully witness, he's saying it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it because you'll be with me. You'll be in eternal life. You will walk with me in robes of white. I will confess your name before the Father and the angels. What greater motivation could we have, friends, to remain faithful witnesses of Jesus? When we're tempted not to declare the gospel, when we worry about how people will react, remember these words, friends. Confess me on earth, he says, and I'll confess you in heaven. It's very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is really teaching us here, friends, is that part of our assurance, part of the way we, that we know that we really are saved comes from how willing we are to share the name of Jesus with others. Is the gospel talked about in our homes, at our dinner tables, or with our children at their bedsides? Spouses and parents, do we hear each other repenting? Asking forgiveness, acknowledging our wrongdoing. Boys and girls, do your mums and dads and brothers and sisters hear you doing that? Is our local church known not just for covenant or history or a building on Brewery Lane, but for being made up of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ? It's dangerously easy, friends, to just start living off the past. And I know that that's not the desire of this congregation because... When the call was presented to me, one of the things that was said was next stage of development. We don't want to be a, a dead or dying congregation here in Dremore. We want to be a congregation looking forward. 
We need God's help for that. We need the power of the Holy Spirit for that. We need to avoid any temptation to look back on the glory days. Look back on the things that used to happen. To start thinking, well, we, you know, we've been here, we're known, we have a reputation. End up just drifting along. Friends, Jesus calls all of that spiritual death. A dead church is one that loses its appetite for the word of God and loses its love for proclaiming Jesus. Jesus, by his word and spirit this evening, friends, calls us to spiritual life. He encourages us with the promise that if we confess him to our neighbours, he will confess us to his Father. If we keep on repenting and witnessing for the few decades we have on earth, we will have an eternity. Free of the pain and suffering that comes with gospel witness here and now, we will have an eternity of walking with him, enjoying him in the white robes of righteousness that he has purchased for us on the cross. If we do sense any kind of spiritual dryness or lethargy or lifelessness, friends, tonight, may we wake up. May we strengthen what remains. May we cry out to the Lord Jesus and his life-giving spirit so that we may conquer and live to hear Jesus say, may we live to hear Jesus rather confess our names in heaven because we have been confessing his name on earth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.